let's sing this to him. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Shown in all your ways. 
Search the world, but he couldn't feel me. Man's empty praise and treasures of faith are never enough. Then you came along and you put me back together. No. 
Good morning, church. How are we doing today? We doing well? Yeah? Good. Let's have you stand to your feet if you would. We're going to worship, then we're going to hear from God's Word. Let's see. Was buried beneath my shame. And who could carry that kind of weight? It was my Till I met you, I was breathing, but not alive. Though my failures I tried to hide, you was my truth. Till I met you. You call my name. And what? Yeah! That's right! Out of the darkness into your glorious day. You call my name. And I ran out of that grave. Out of the darkness into your 
glorious day. Now your mercy has saved my soul. Now your mercy has saved my soul. Now your freedom is all that I know. The old made new. Jesus, when I met you, is who you call my name. And I ran out of that grave. Yeah. Out of the darkness into your glorious day. You called my name. And now to read to you out of Ephesians 2 today. It says, For as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. His word says that we were dead and in the grave, but now are alive because of what Christ has done for us. So we sing this in confidence. It goes like this. Yeah. I needed rescue. My sin was heavy. Chains break and the weight of your glory. Needed shelter. You sing it. citizen of heaven when I was broken you were my healing now your love is the air that I'm breathing I have a future my eyes are open cause when you call my name yes I ran out of my grave out of the darkness into your glorious day Take your seats. Good morning. So great to see you all. This is good. I'm going to invite Matt and Anna and Josh and Carly to come up. Now, month of May was our emphasis on outreach, right? 
But then we had a, a weekend there that got a little nutty, and we were all supposed to do a B-Bold presentation to you in the month of May, but here we are in June. All right, so as, as we welcome them, many of you know that B-Bold Streets Ministries, and I'm on their board, been a part of it since the beginning, um, that, that it's, it's homeless outreach, right? That they're going to the highways and the byways, and they're taking needs to folks. They're getting food to them and, and clothing and those different things that they need. But the most important thing they do every time we go out is this, share the gospel, see people saved. Now, we don't have a lot of time. We've got like five to seven minutes, right? We're working this thing out. But what I wanted you to hear is this. For some of y'all, some of you actually think it's enablement. Some of y'all actually think that when we're going out and we're handing them socks or giving them food, that we're enabling them. If no one shows up with the gospel to these precious folks, how do they ever get saved? So, so they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Amen. Matt Becerra, after he got saved, had this heart to go downtown and hand out waters to the same place as he was dealing dope. And that's how Bold Street Ministries ended up starting. As he was a part of the most excellent way, he started going down to those same places. But he had this heart to go to the Philippines. Now, you guys have been there five times, right? He had this heart to go to the Philippines because in the Philippines, they kill drug addicts. If you're dealing drugs, you die. They went over on a missions trip to the Philippines five different times. One time, one of the officials there, they got invited to go back to a prison. There was 97 men in a cell. They shared the gospel. The man in the, in the, that was back there with you, an official, said, how many of you, police chief, said, how many of you are part of the syndicate? Seven men raised their hands, drug syndicate. They shared the gospel. All of the men got saved. Those seven men were executed the next morning. Bold Street Ministries is a homeless outreach, but it is way more than that. Matt, will you share with the folks what's going on with a state senator? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the amazing thing. The Lord has provided us so many platforms amongst all people groups, um, as the world designates people groups. We've been able to be in uh, seated senators' offices, state representatives, and being able to have conversations with former senators and multiple public officials on a local and national level. And for us, the message is exactly the same. It's like, God, it's unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The gospel is for all people, not just our unsheltered, but everybody. So I had a conversation this last week um, with, a, with a public official and um, sharing Christ, right? Because that's what we're called to do. We're all called to go, therefore, and make disciples, right? And remembering we live in a nation. It's not just abroad. And um, so I'm sharing and this individual goes, you know, that's what's missing is the gospel. And I said, because what we see all around us are symptoms, symptoms of the problem. And the world does have a problem, and it's called sin. And ultimately, for me to even say that would be considered politically incorrect, right? But I'm not called to be politically correct. I'm, I'm, I'm called to live and walk by means of the Spirit of God. And... Um, that, that, I mean, the conversation went on for a little over an hour, um, so there was so much to it, and I know I'm on limited time here, and that's a big thing for me, um, and, but praise the Lord, it's beyond me to not share. I mean, we could sit here and work through so many things, like even as Pastor Matt was saying, we've seen over 10,000 people give their life to the Lord through the ministry so far this year, 177 folks have been reconciled to the Father through faith in His Son.
You know, and as, as Matt was saying this week, uh, also myself, Matt, and uh, Ken Patterson, we were downtown doing what we do every day, and that's hit the streets and share the gospel. And uh, one of our commissioners uh, stopped us and was having a conversation, and we got to share about uh, what it is that we do and why we were out there. Uh, she said that she sees us out there um, all the time and sees, you know, people with our gear on, the Hope Dealer gear, whether it's on Market Street or on Lancaster, all over throughout the, the county of, of Marion, and uh, she said, would you be interested um, in meeting with our governor? And I kind of chuckled because I was thinking, why? <laughs> That's a first. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah. And she said, you know, I think it'd be really interesting for her to hear your guys' perspective on the drug epidemic and uh, the different laws that are being passed. You know, so it, for us, it, it truly is all people group. It doesn't matter if they're you know, in the gutters or, you know, in the West Salem Hills, everybody needs Jesus. And we're just blessed that we get to share it on all platforms. As you all hear that, Beebold Street Ministries is beyond, and it's enough that they would go to the places nobody else, you know, goes. But, but the reality is, is they're showing how much they care by showing up. And then the gospel's going forth and people are getting saved. One of the reasons to support Be Bold Street Ministries is they are going to some of the places that you are very frustrated about right now. Like as we're driving around and people are getting frustrated, they're showing up. But so does, so does Bruce from the UGM. He shows up, goes in, the, in their rescue mission. We're all working together. There's plenty of room down at the UGM right now to get people in. It's true. And then the new one's opening soon. If nobody goes to them and helps them get there, we have a couple that came to the most excellent way in West Salem here about two, three years ago. The lady threatened my wife to beat her up in group. Beebold Street Ministries, the most excellent way, and also the UGM and Salvation Army all worked with this couple, but they helped that couple as she's on meds and in her right mind now get into housing here just recently. Okay, you gotta hear that. Our heart, as people show up spun out on drugs, in the most excellent way, or drinking, or on, on porn, or whatever it is that we're doing in the most excellent way, it combines with this. It combines with what's going on in the homeless community. It, it, it all works together. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do, is to prayerfully consider this. $20 a month, $10 a month. I'm not even gonna go above that. Because if you fully fund the, the Be Bold Street Ministries, they just started a chapter in South Carolina. They just were in, in Panama City, Florida, helping them know and then I just got asked by a pastor here in Oregon to have us come down there and show them how to work with the homeless. Your support of that, it doesn't have to be much. But if you, if you prayerfully consider, can I support that? They'll be back at the missions kiosk back here in this corner for you all to be able to come and talk with them. But they'll have the website there. You can go check out what they're doing. The reality is this. You're investing in the fact that things like seven guys that were being executed the next morning heard the, the good news received Christ because somebody here in Oregon had a heart to get there and went. So we're thankful for you all. I just throw that out at you all because uh, this is family here, and we're thankful for you. So may the Lord bless you. Enjoy the rest of your time worshiping. And we sure are thankful for them, aren't we? Lost at one time. 
God opened our eyes. Amen. Here's our song singing. And I searched the way. Praise and treasures of faith are never enough. Then you came along and you put me back together. Yeah, yes. Every desire is now satisfied. Hearing you love. Let's have you stand to your feet as we sing this out.
Amen. And you can take your seats.
Father, we look forward to that day. When we see you face to face and we are at rest, finally. God, we're so thankful for this psalm which paints that picture that if we would just come to you, we can even own that now. God, we would pray that you'd help us to look to you in all things, to desire that relationship with you, which you offer. Father, we would pray that uh, you would help us even now um, as we look into your word. We pray that we would hear from you. Uh, We would pray that um, we would receive what it is you have for us. We know that you do not want us to stay where we're at. You want us to grow, be challenged. You're going to convict us when it's necessary of that. God, I would pray that you would help us to hear from you now, for these are your holy words we're about to hear. I pray that you would help us uh, to listen to them. We're so thankful for this morning, the time of worship we've had in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Yeah, you can clap. That was amazing this morning, wasn't it? Man, how awesome is it to be here this morning? Aren't you thankful? You know, uh, I'm not positive. It feels like I'm just a little bit hot in here. Is, is that a little loud? I can get louder, but I'm actually just at my low grumble. It gets bigger from there. So, um, I, I want you, before we just jump into our um, final message out of the book of Acts, all right? So Acts 28, starting in verse 17, that's where we're going to be this morning. But before we do that, you guys heard from our Be Bold guys And you know, over the last 10 years, we've actually been in the midst of praying for some particular things to be happening within our church. We showed you a series of uh, pictures 10 years ago, people whose lives had been changed, both from outside of our church and then some that were changed inside of the ministries that were going on here. But we actually issued a phrase, a declaration that we were praying for that we would stop searching for stories out there and start living the story in here so that those stories that we had heard about would be happening right in our midst. Well, they are. Are you thankful for that? They're happening. And so now, as a family, what I'm going to ask you to do, if you really believe in something as a family, you shift your finances around to be able to support. When, when you as a family want to go to Disneyland, you make room, right? The kids are okay sacrificing a Twinkie here and there if they're going to go to see the big mouse. <laughs> in the same way, I want you to think about this isn't a sacrifice. This is actually an investment in the kingdom. You'll get all of that back. All right? In your relationship with the Lord, in eternity, but also in supporting these guys. I would encourage you, don't leave today without at least going by and finding out how is it that you can join them in some way, if not financially, in what they're doing, but invest in what uh, is happening. That's a story born right here. All right? Because you guys prayed them into existence. So I'm asking you to support them. We're in an amazing place here in the book of Acts. It's the end of the book of Acts. Uh, Ray Stedman was the actual originator of that uh, title there, The End of the Beginning, because this book only is the beginning of the story of the church age. We are living in the church age. That's what uh, theologians call it. 
We're living in a time right now where the church is on center stage. There will be a season where God makes all things new, where the millennial reign of Jesus Christ happens. We will see him here ruling and reigning in a different way. Uh, he's going to put some things right. Government that you can trust. <laughs> no, amen goes there, not chuckles, all right? I know. Just pushing buttons. Let's jump into the text maybe. Uh, I want you to notice, though, what's happening here in this section is similar to what happened in chapter 12, verse 17. Chapter 12, verse 17, there's this amazing story where Peter is put into prison for sharing the gospel. You remember this. He thinks he's going to die. He's shackled there between uh, two prisoners or between uh, two soldiers. Uh, in the middle of the night, Peter's like, well, I'm going to die in the morning. I might as well get a good night's rest. He's asleep. The angel kicks him awake, opens up all the doors. The shackles drop off, the doors pop open, and he ends up at the, the front of a prayer meeting. He's knocking on the door. They're asking God to intervene on Peter's behalf. Peter's knocking at the door saying, he did. They didn't believe him. A lot like us today, right? We pray not knowing if anything will happen, but God is bigger than our doubt. And so Peter is standing at the door, he knocks, but it says something really spectacular. The very last phrase that we see in 2.17, you can read it in your own Bible, is it says, he, he, he tells them, go and tell James and all the guys, I'm alive. And the final phrase from Peter is, and he went away to somewhere else. Well, we don't hear from Peter again in the book of Acts. You know what he literally did? He went away to somewhere else. And the next thing that we see is Paul and Barnabas and a group of people starting a missions movement. Well, now we come to the end of that. At the very end of this chapter also, Paul says something spectacular. He says, and now it's going to go to the Gentiles. And it ends here the same way that it ended there in the middle of the book, a change of storyline. But you want to know what the amazing thing is? You and I are the next part of the story. So where Paul and Barnabas and a mission group pick up for Peter, you and I are asked to pick up for Paul. This is not just the end of the story, but it's the beginning of ours, and we should be captivated with it. Let's stand and read verses 17 through the end of chapter 28, and with it we will have finished the book of Acts. It says this, after three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And after they examined me, they wanted to release me since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no charge to bring against my people. By the way, that, that should be underlined there. You're in prison, you've been beaten, you've been attacked, you've been hurt, and he says, I'm in prison here, but I still have no charge against you. Is that how you treat those who are so hard against you? He says, for this reason, I ask to see you and to speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. When they said to him, well, we haven't received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers have come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we do want to hear your view, what your views are. 
since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. After arranging a day with him, many came to his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified the kingdom of God. Now, now we get in trouble for going over 30 minutes, right? Hit oil or quit boring. He tried to persuade them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. Disagreeing amongst themselves, interesting reaction. They began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, when he said, go to these people and say to them, you will always be listening but never understanding, and you will always be looking but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown calloused. Their ears are hard of hearing. They have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes. They might hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul stayed two whole years in his rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. Do you believe that happened? It did. You may be seated. I just want to highlight three things as we wrap this up. Because uh, a sermon is incomplete if it only has two points, okay? (laughs) Three things. First, I want you to notice that when Paul got together with these people, he prompted them to study prophecy. He prompted them to study prophecy. In fact, he starts with some phrases that would have been loaded for these Jewish believers. It says uh, in verse 20 there, For this reason I've asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Now, if we're just reading this, a lot of commentators just uh, begin to talk about what the hope of Israel might have been. It might have been in a kingdom. It might have been this or it might have been that. But there actually is such a phrase in the Old Testament when you uh, see the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, There actually is the exact same phrase that is found in the Old Testament. In fact, it's found in a couple of places. I'll just quote to you. It's found in quite a few. I'll just quote to you two. Listen to this. It's for the hope of Israel, he says. Specific phrase. In Jeremiah chapter 14, this phrase shows up, and it is embedded in this paragraph. It says, though our iniquities testify against us, Lord... Act for your namesake. Indeed, our rebellions are many. We have sinned against you. Hope of Israel, its savior in time of distress. Why are you like a resident alien in the land, like a traveler stopping only for the night? Why are you like a helpless man, like a warrior unable to save? Yet you are among us, Lord, and we bear your name. Don't leave us. Hebrew idioms in there are a little tough for us to kind of wrap our mind around. It's worth studying, but here he uses hope of Israel as the title, as a name for an individual. And he says, like a traveler stopping for a night, we see this individual, the hope of Israel, for a moment, and it looks like he's a warrior that couldn't save, such as Jesus on the cross, right? But in fact, he did save. When he gave his life, he won the battle. Yet you are among us, Lord. This is actually a reference to Jesus Christ fulfilling that passage. It comes up again just a few chapters later in Jeremiah 17. 
It says, a glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away will be written in the dirt. For they've abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Have you ever heard that name, living waters, attached to anybody in the scriptures? It's Jesus. All who abandon you will be what? Written in the dirt? Well, how long does a name stay in the dirt? It passes away. The next rain, the next strong wind, the next group to walk across it. But here is this individual, the Lord, the hope of Israel. Paul says, I'm about to tell you about the hope of Israel, the one who saves us from sin, the one who looked like a warrior who wasn't strong enough, but he actually won the day. He's actually the source of living waters, and he can give you eternal life. And they said, we're curious. We want to know. And they stayed all day long. Now, he prompted them to study prophecy, but also we know from different places where Paul begins to unpack his method in the epistles that he probably started all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 3.15, there's a promise that's made to the serpent. You're going to bruise his heel, God says to the serpent, but he will crush your head. In chapter 4, verse 1, the first child is born to Adam and Eve. And there, Eve actually proclaims, I have gotten a man-child. In the original language, it says, even the Lord. Most theologians, and if you just look this up online now, in fact, it's so prominent, you'll be able to see the discussion that's going on. Most theologians believe that actually Eve's understanding at that moment was that this child, Cain, might be the answer to the prophecy of the one who would crush the serpent's head. Well, it turned out Cain was far from Jesus, right? He didn't fulfill it. But thus begins a study all the way through the scriptures of children where you see a couple and they're barren or they're struggling, but God supernaturally says, I'm going to give you a child. And you begin to look and say, is this the one that's the answer to the prophecy? And it happens over and over and over and over. And names like Moses and David and and Elijah, we have all of these names that show up that were not the Messiah. A little glimpse of what they could have been but not Jesus, until all of the Gospels tell us Jesus is the fulfillment of that one who would crush the serpent's head. He would walk them through patterns in Scripture, but also he would walk them through promises, things that they could not understand that even to this day within Judaism are discussed. Zechariah chapter 12 talks about a day that is coming in the future where God will judge and put all things right. And it says in chapter 12, verse 10, And then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and on the residents of Jerusalem. And they will look at me, key word, they will look at me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him. Now it's talking as if it's another person. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. He goes on to describe the scene of the day. But this is something that comes up in the book of Revelation that is answered as Jesus Christ. When he returns, the aha moment happens for the entire world and they will see this one, the firstborn, only son of God that actually paid the price for our sin by being pierced. He walks them through all these scriptures and prophecy and has an Emmaus Road event with them. And it says from morning to night, they didn't ask for it to end. It just got time. 
They're studying. They're overwhelmed. They're touched. All this biblical evidence is coming up, and this was Paul's pattern. Now, I'm going to introduce you to something, and uh, I don't want you to get derailed by the illustration, okay? But there is a story that is quite popular in our culture, and I was listening to an atheist who was also part of an alternative lifestyle, who then, hearing the story of Jesus Christ, actually was transformed. But part of that transformation was her understanding of a popular storyline. Now, remember, Paul used drunken playwrights and bombastic poets in his storylines to make sure that people would listen. I'm going to use Severus Snape, okay? (laughs) Here's Snape. And for those people who have read those books, the storyline is that Snape, you don't know if he's for or against everything that's going on. Every time that they see him, they see him either doing something good or then all of a sudden it seems like he's doing something bad. You don't know if he's for or against. In fact, it seems like he's the enemy of the key guy, Harry. But in one of the books, as Snape is dying, Harry somehow gets a glimpse into his memories. And when he sees the memories, and I don't know if you know, I don't know if somebody's reading these right now, so um, disclaimer, I'm about to tell you what happens. <laughs> he sees all of these memories, and it goes all the way back to when uh, Snape was little, and he knew Harry's mom. He'd fallen in love with Harry's mom, and when she died, he'd made a pledge that he was going to protect him, but in order to do that, it couldn't be obvious that he was for him. And so he has now, throughout all of the books, been doing good or bad or good or bad, but always to be able to support him. And in that moment, all of a sudden, the entire storyline of this guy changes because you could see actually what his intentions were. Instead of being good or bad, he was always for him, and he understood his entire storyline differently. McLaughlin, when she was writing about this, she said, you know what? As I was living my lifestyle and I was listening to Christians and they were quoting scripture, it seems like they would insert themselves at all of the wrong moments. And I didn't know, were they for me? They said they loved me. Or were they against me? They keep bringing these things up. For me or against me? For me or against me? I couldn't know. In fact, I began to fear to see them. But then all of a sudden, I got Jesus Christ. And as soon as I read what he did and I read what scripture was saying, it all made sense. And I saw that in fact, they were for me, that their words were for me, that scripture was for me. I saw the entire thing differently, and the the linchpin was Jesus Christ. I saw that, in fact, he wasn't against me, but it was actually his deep love for me inserted into all those moments where I was living for myself and ruining my own life that actually caused me to see it rightly. A linchpin is just a, a key piece of equipment or an individual that causes everything to hold together. The linchpin of scripture is Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I want you to understand how he fulfills all of the passages that you could not wrap your mind around. Jesus is the answer. He taught them a pattern of discipleship. But there's a second thing that we see in this passage, and that is that Paul proclaimed that they themselves had fulfilled prophecy. It says, the Holy Spirit is right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, verse 26, when he said, go to these people and say, you'll always be listening but never understanding. You'll always be looking but never perceiving. You actually find that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 6, 
Isaiah chapter 6 is a famous moment in the prophet Isaiah's life. His closest friend, the leader that was uh, ruling Israel for 40 years, had just died. And Isaiah finds himself in the temple of God worshiping, wondering what is next. And it says this in verse 1, I saw the Lord seated high and lofty on a throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim was standing above him. Each one had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of the voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Because my eyes have seen the king of the Lord of armies. He said, I've listened to the way that I spoke, but now that I see you, God, I'm afraid. But also, I'm in your presence. I shouldn't be alive. And one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, now it's touched your lips. Your iniquity is removed. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am. Send me. And he replied, go and say to these people, keep listening but don't understand. Keep looking but don't perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their mind and turn back and be healed. Now, just the introduction of that verse is worthy of your consideration. What is God actually talking about when he says, allow them to be dull? That's a topic for another day, but I hope that it piques your interest. Here's what I want you to see, two different things. First of all, there is a pattern that happens in Scripture. And that is when you and I begin to hear the Word of God, our first reaction, if we're not in line with it, is, I don't like it. In fact, we begin with, well, did God really say that? I just want you on your own to think in the last 18 months whether or not there have been some scriptures that have been brought up to you and you've asked yourself, did God really say that? That's what was happening in this place. It also is common for us to say, well, you know what? If this is true, I'm going to have to restrict myself. I'm going to have to hang on to what he says rather than what I want. By the way, all the way throughout the century, since the garden, it has been a known thing that love restricts, okay? If you love God, you will find yourself restricted. If you are in love with your spouse, at the moment you make vows, you honestly are saying to the entire world, I have restricted myself to this one person. It is not exclusivism. It's not wrong for you to say I am a one-woman man or a one-man woman. It is not wrong for you to say that. It is love that puts that on display. To restrict yourself in that way is a beautiful thing. It is a sign of high dedication. Paul says, I want you to restrict yourself to what God says. And they're looking around saying, but there's so many other things I want. And then they finally ask, well, is it really wise to be so restrictive? Just... On your own, I want you to go back and read the garden story. As Satan is looking at them, he begins with three questions that have continued on all the way till today. Did God really say that? 
Look at it. It's good for food. It's shiny. It's appealing. It's tasty. None of the things, by the way, that God said were a problem with the fruit. This is going to be useful to make you wise. It's going to be useful to to make you be more well-rounded. As they began to hear this view of Jesus Christ, that he is the answer to all the conundrums in Scripture. In fact, he was the answer for their soul. They began saying, did God really say this? If I have to buy into that, I'm actually going to lose my position, my place, and everything that my identity is going to change. Is it really wise to just focus on Jesus? And it doesn't say that they argued with Paul because he had shown conclusively that Jesus is the answer. It says... In verse 25, that disagreeing among themselves. Why? It's really clear in Scripture that Jesus Christ is the answer. In fact, it's really clear when we look at our world that Jesus Christ is the answer. I don't think there's any mystery to that. If Jesus Christ is who he said he is, he's actually the Savior of the world. Amen? He is. But the problem is, it's going to impact me if I have to follow him. What? I'm going to change. My identity will shift. The things I hang on to will be different. And they knew that. And they began to argue with each other saying, man, this really informs our culture in a different and radical way. But Paul is also identifying another pattern. And that is for those that go and preach, quite often you will hear a story like Isaiah's, like Paul's, like others. Paul, remember, was also in a moment where he sees a bright light and he has an encounter with God and he gets a call to go to those who may not receive his message. This has consistently been part of the story. And he says, just like Isaiah was asked to go to hard-hearted people, I have been asked to go to hard-hearted people. He says, but I haven't quit. It's God's love for you that compels him to send me to you. But also I'm going to the Gentiles. He says the story has been fulfilled in you. Klein Snodgrass, great name, guy that's still alive, by the way, so uh, don't mock him on the uh, video. He's a theologian, and he was actually working with a, a, a group of people that were trying to walk through what it actually means for the devil to be active in the world, and they were having actually a lunch break, and one of the other guys that is kind of his disciples was just telling the story about how he would use everyday life in their conversations to put on display biblical truths. And he began to tell a story at this coffee shop about the devil walking with his cohorts. The devil's walking along as they were seeing all these people walk along. He says, you know, the devil was walking with his guys one day. And he actually saw a man stoop down and pick up something shiny. And one of the cohorts, one of the other demons, looks at him and says, hey, what was it that that guy just picked up? And the devil told him, well, he said he just picked up a little piece of truth. And he goes, well, do you want me to run and snatch that away from him? Are we going to allow him to hang on to that little bit of truth? And the devil said, oh, no, it's not going to be a problem. He says, I'm just going to make him focus on it to the point that he makes that his religion. A little tiny piece of truth that misses the entire point. He says, this is the pattern that we see in Scripture. And by the way, folks, this is a pattern that we see today. We get hung up in one little truth and we start separating from everybody else around us. We make that our religion and we miss the point and we begin to argue among ourselves. Did God really say that? And the result is we're looking at each other and strangling each other rather than sharing the gospel with the world. 
And Paul says that's a sign of a hard heart. I know I'm kind of digging, uh, digging deep here, but Wilbur Reese a long time ago wrote something that Erwin Lutzer and Chuck Swindoll both quoted. He wrote a little passage in a book that says this, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack, please. I would like just $3 worth of God. Folks, the battle throughout all the ages is that what we really want is a little something to make us feel better about our lives so we can walk out and face the world rather than mind-blowing transformation that leads us to walk differently. But if you encounter the God of this book, he will change your direction. He'll change you. He warned them of a pattern of disobedience, but there's a third thing that he did, and this is really profound. Are you still with me? We doing okay? I know, it's just body blow, body blow, but now this is exciting, okay? So... Verse 28, it says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Get this. Now he's had them studying prophecy. He says they fulfilled a prophecy, but Paul pronounces to them a prophecy. They will listen. He announces to them that the Gentiles would respond. I just want you right now this morning to test that theory. Was Paul right? I want you to look at a couple of graphs. First one here is the percentage of major religions in the world as of 2010. This has actually grown since then. In 2010, 31% uh, were Christians. uh, Between 31 to 34, depending on the the, uh, sample size that you took or who it was that was doing that, 16% were unaffiliated. That was a growing group at the time of atheism, mostly growing in the United States, stagnant in Europe, not growing anywhere else. Now, actually, in in 2020, what we actually have found out is that that group has grown to 37% uh, of believers in Jesus Christ, and the number of unaffiliated in the rest of the world has dropped down to around 10. It's becoming less popular to be an atheist. That's a significant thing. Uh, In fact, I want you to see also this, this uh, passion to share the word. In God's word right now, Uh, Illuminations is a grouping. There was a whole bunch of individual groups that were getting the word of God into other languages. Uh, As of today, there's just over 750 uh, languages that have the Bible in their language. There's 100 key languages that have at least two translations that are available for them. By 2033, this group of different translators believe that of the other, over 2,000 some odd languages about that don't have a full translation of the Bible, that they believe they will have the full translation of the Bible in the heart language of every alive language in our world by 2033. Folks, no other faith has this kind of commitment to put the language of God into their language, to be able to speak directly to them. Christianity is on the rise. It is continuing to spread, and it is winning around the world. 
In the clash of civilization, Samuel Huntington predicted that uh, in a short while, um, Muhammad wins against Christianity. That prompted a guy at Penn State, Professor Philip Jenkins, writing The Next Christendom. I'm not sure that he even comes from a background of faith, but he says that's absolutely not true. You don't see the way that Christianity is beginning to grow in these cultures. He says in 1900, there were 10 million Christians in Africa. By 2000, there were 360 million. By 2025, conservative estimates see that number rising to 633 million. Those same estimates put the number of Christians in Latin America in 2025 at 640 million and in Asia at 460 million. Christianity is exploding on the scene in every other place except for in our country. It is on the rise to such a degree that they believe 40 to 42% of the world will be Christian in just a short while. Another thing that I want you to see, just so that you can have something to say for those atheists, it's the distribution of Christianity. If you see a great big blue line, that's because that faith or that religion is really popular in one culture or in one nationality. Notice at the top the overall global population Hindus, Buddhists, folk religionists, other religions, unaffiliated, even Muslims. You see a big blue line. Look at what you see with Christianity. The big blue line isn't how many people are Christians. It's how evenly distributed it is. Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Europe, North America, Latin America, Middle East. You see a line that is about equal all the way across. Why? Because the most evenly distributed faith around the world is Christianity, the most accepting, the one that causes the cultures to rise to the greatest degree, the one that has the answers for the world is Christianity. It's Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want to find a place with bombastic white old males leading it, go to atheism. 80% are a bunch of old academics telling the world how to live and what to believe. I don't believe that that's politically correct. We should end it now. The distribution of Christianity is on the rise. Paul said, God is sending this salvation to the Gentiles. They will listen. He didn't lie. It is still growing. And why is it growing? Because when worldwide pressure hits, the only people with peace are those who have focused on Jesus Christ. And if you don't have peace in here today, it's because you let go of your faith and held on to something else and God's bringing you back. Jesus is the answer. He's the answer. And Paul says, I'm going to those who will listen. He inaugurated a pattern of desegregation. Jesus is not only inclusive, He is the one that has an equal love for all those in the world. Now, we're we're out of time, so I just want to close with this thought. There is a disease in the world called deep vein thrombosis. Anybody heard of that? We have some in our family, our family line, that uh, actually are impacted by this. Deep vein thrombosis uh, is the... Uh, problem that you have where blood begins to pool up in certain parts of your body, it can cause a clot. Now, the problem with deep vein thrombosis is uh, that it can actually cause your heart to stop, okay? So what's the antidote for pooling blood? Activity. The greatest danger to people with deep vein thrombosis is a lack of activity. 
Why do I bring that up to you? Because we are the family of God, and we are prone to deep vein thrombosis. What does that mean? We tend to keep the blood in one place. We pool up. We don't move. We're inactive in our faith. The greatest danger to our faith is not that the world has somehow figured out something that works better. The greatest danger to our faith is not that somehow Jesus has been replaced by science. The greatest danger to our faith is inactivity, sitting in one place without going and living our faith. Acts begs us to launch out and share the good news. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to live it out, that you would help us to uh, put Christ on display in such a way that the world would see, that they would know that Jesus is the answer. We pray, Father, that you would help us uh, not to be stagnant, not to sit in one place, not to be afraid of the statistics that the world throws around, that somehow Christianity has lost its way or lost its momentum. You have not quit. The Spirit of God is not silent. The Word of God has not lost its power. If anything, it has more energy, more answers, more ability in this day to meet our need than ever before. Father, help us to cling to that, to declare it, and to live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning, folks. You're dismissed. Sing, I believe. I believe in the sun. I believe in the risen. Yeah.